Kent Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s, and we are now 80 years old. In 1959, we were the largest number of blacks ever admitted to Harvard. We entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Harvard Crimson student journalist and investigative reporter Simon Levian. On April 7th, he wrote a piece titled, A Secret at the Hearth of Adam's House. Quote, a fireplace in Adam's house has racist caricatures sculpted into its pillars. Without a word, administrators boarded them up to divert attention away. Three years on, they have yet to formally publicly acknowledge these sculptures or their literal cover-up. Simon wrote that, quote, Together, the trio of figures on the left pillar depicted an African, indigenous, and Asian figure holding a club, a ball, and a stick, respectively, as if they were participating in sport or war. In contrast, the right-hand pillar depicted figures with European features participating in learned activities, a monkish figure held an open book. Simon Levian's story is about a real Harvard cover-up. I'm joined by 13 of my classmates. Great Eastern, class of 63-64, living in Prior Lake, Minnesota, which is a third-ring suburb of Minneapolis. Peter, really? Uh, yeah. Good morning, everybody. I um, I'm really fascinated by this topic, and I'm very much looking forward to Simon's remarks. I'm living in Harvard, Massachusetts, about an hour out of Cambridge, and um, was Harvard class of '63 slash '65. My sophomore year, I was in Dunster House, where Simon is now, apparently. Uh, but my junior and senior years, I was in Adams, but in D entry on the other side of uh, Adams House. So I occasionally went into A and saw those gargoyles, but not often. Alden. Well, here's my Dunster pin here. <laughs> hey. Anyway, I uh, grew up, I'm born in Mass General, actually grew up in Northwestern Connecticut. Uh, lived around the country, various places now in California, about uh, 10 miles north of Ken. Jerry. Uh, Jerry Secundi, I live in Pasadena, California in class of 63 and spent three years in Dunster. And to the best of my knowledge, I was not allowed in Adam's house. Pam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I'm, I, I, I'm a psychologist, still active in uh, Nashville and uh, uh, Adam's house was the site of a really weird realization for me. I think it was my junior year. I was walking along in the uh, on the third floor, looking at metal banisters and slate things on the bottom, and then all of a sudden I realized this was built by somebody. This has not always been here, <laughs> and, and, and it was a shock. I'm Doug Shapiro, living now in uh, Louisville. Uh, I've had uh, multiple uh, uh, careers uh, in my time, including living in for at least three months in uh, each of seven different countries, <laughs> including Puerto Rico and so forth and so on. Anyway, uh, I was also in Adams House in B entry. In those days, A and B were referred to as the Gold Coast. I don't know if it's still uh, treated that way, uh, but I never saw these uh, strange sculptures in a entry. And so I was completely taken, taken aback by it. So I'm really interested in this discussion. John. Oh, hi, uh, John Woodford. I'm, I am in Georgetown, Colorado. I was hoping to show you the background of the highway going by behind this motel. We're here to see our, one of our granddaughters graduate from Colorado School of Mines tomorrow. So we're on the road. Nick. Uh, Nick Bancroft, Medfield, Mass. Uh, <clears throat> this guy, these guys, uh, class of 63, business school, uh, Peace Corps in India, and then stints in manufacturing and 
investments, trust wills, all that kind of stuff. John, are you are you in a hotel in Georgetown that's been yes. restored? Uh, not the restored hotel. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. No. Cool place. Too. I should say I was in Leverett and then moved to um, Dudley because I got off campus because of the because of the missile crisis and they oversubscribed the rooms. So once I got off campus, um, I never went back in inside. But I was in Adam's house quite a bit, not knowing what my psyche was undergoing. <laughs> Peter, I, 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 I was in Leverett House, uh, but my roommate from freshman year, Ikoi Arma, the Ghanaian novelist, lived in Adam's house. So I went over to Adam's house quite a lot. Uh, I smoked pot for the first time over in Adam's house with Arma. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, George, George Jones. So as I think Bill has already pointed out, we were roommates in Adam's house and I entry. I don't even remember a entry and I'm pretty sure that I ignored it while I was there. I am still married. And the reason I'm wearing headphones is because my wife is doing yoga next door. Okay. <laughs> All right. Spencer. Hi, calling from uh, sunny Florida. I won't be able to uh, stay for uh, much of the, uh, uh, the session. It's too bad. I read the article when it first came out. It is fascinating. And I guess a bunch of us have now, most of us have read it because thanks to Kent sending. And David Allen, welcome. How are you? Thank you so much, Kent. Uh, so pleased, finally, to not be traveling and be able to get here. Uh, indeed, uh, 1963. And for goodness sake, that uh, now to be damned a entry in Adam's house with a bunch of rowdies. Oh, we were outrageous in those years. I'm afraid I qualified as amongst the worst. I used to get embarrassed about it. Now I just simply say, oh, that's the way it was. Uh, Hamp and Doug can tell you. Uh, I saw Doug. Barbara and I had dinner with Doug here, what, a week and a half ago when we were in my hometown, uh, in a little town across the river in Indiana. Um, so I think what we're doing is introducing ourselves. Hope I'm right about that. Um, yes. I've had a very checkered life. Um, uh, probably the thing I'm proudest of is when I graduated in 63, I took a job as a grease monkey in uh, high-performance cars out in Waltham. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't to last. I found myself uh, going into OCS, a really absurd thing to do, and Vietnam War looming and become an infantry officer. And a bunch of other wild and woolly stuff, uh, some of the fun things, uh, um, hanging out in MIT and, and Harvard in my middle years, uh, being in uh, startup businesses in the early years after the B school and the last 20 years or so, uh, in whatever way, uh, trying to preserve and strengthen democracy, but we'll get into all those trades. We're really looking forward to today and finding out this bad thing that's happened at a okay. And thank you for the welcome, sir. Let's go to Simon now and welcome and uh, thank you for coming on. Tell us all about it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you all so much. Um, so you heard my intro last year, um, but my name is Simon Levian. Um, I'm a student reporter for Crimson. I'm a sophomore in the class of 2024. Uh, I should be in the class of 2023, but it took a year off of school over COVID in 2020, uh, in the 2021 school year. Um, and I'm in Dunster House and from New Jersey originally, but I'm still on campus right now. Um, so I started working on the story um, just about last summer-ish. Uh, and I had a tip that this was something to look at into Adam's house. And if you walk into a entryway today, um, it's noticeable how large the fireplace is. You walk into the lobby, turn to the right, and you see this 
floor to ceiling, wall to wall fireplace. It's this massive granite entablature. Um, and it has these massive oversized pillars um, that if you just take a step back and look at it, you know, you can tell they don't really belong there. Um, they're a little bit discolored. They mimic the styling of the historic architectural details, but fundamentally, you know, you could tell it doesn't belong if you gave it more than a moment's glance. Um, and this is a very transitory type of space, right? So, you know, you walk through it, you go to your dorm, whatever it might be. You don't really dilly-dally here. So it's not surprising that this is something that people haven't really noticed for a while. Um, and over the course of uh, 11 months on and off doing research, archival work and doing interviews about this, this, uh, this particular issue, I'm trying to unravel you know, what exactly is behind those encasings, um, how the decision was made to encase them, and then finally, you know, what comes next? What, why, like, what were students saying? What will students say? What will happen to these, uh, these fireplaces, this fireplace? And um, after a lot of digging into the history, last summer, um, I was in Boston um, doing some work for the Crimson, and I spent some time at the University Archives, at the Cambridge Public Library, at the Boston Public Library, you know, running through all these books about fireplace history and architectural history, just to figure out what the heck this was. Um, and long story short, I established um, that, you know, this fireplace is built around 1902 uh, by Warren and Wetmore, a very prominent um, architectural firm. They designed Grand Central Station, as you may have read in the article. And uh, they primarily draw drew from like Beaux Beaux Art, like uh, architectural details around the turn of the century style, and it's not surprising that within this sort of architectural period, you would have sculptures that represent or harp on sort of heavy social themes of progress, often with a sort of racial element to them. Um, so after doing a lot of research and trying to find photos and sketches and so forth of what is behind the pillars, I was able to establish through some verbal descriptions and some photos what exactly the, the pillars are. So behind the encasings, right, you have these six statues, um, three on either pillar. Uh, the left-hand side um, seems to show uh, figures that have, um, that represent different sort of races or societies. And on the right hand, you have three figures that are supposed to sort of represent more European features and have more like a learned look to them. So on the left-hand side, um, we have what appears to be a caricature of an African man holding a club. We have um, a man in the middle that has a large headdress, some sort of nose jewelry, um, and is holding a ball, perhaps like the ball reminiscent of a Meso Mesoamerican ball game, uh, perhaps caricaturing like indigenous cultures. And on the right innermost, uh, we have what has been described to me as an Asian figure um, and is holding a stick. Um, and on the right hand uh, pillar, we have, this was, I was unable to sort of establish a visual record of all the ones on the right hand side, but um, we have like a um, figure cap that's holding a large book um, and there are a few other figures sort of in a similar style um, and what was I was told by several you know historians and people who had uh, done a little research into this was that it's probably um, a sort of social progress narrative of you know here's here's a character of these different races left hand side showing sport uh, certain physical like Whereas on the right hand side, we have the more European, higher status, um, um, like uh, almost a little satirical, um, like learned societies. Um, so after I established this, I wanted to learn about, you know, had students ever said anything about this before? So um, what I learned was that uh, the deans had told me, the faculty deans of Adams House at the time uh, had told me that this had come up in like student discussions and things like that um, over the course of many years. You know, people have raised this concern informally to them before. And there were some students who, who raised this in 2019. Um, and at the end of the faculty terms, these are the, the Palfreys, Sean Palfrey and Judith Palfrey. At the end of their term, they decided that they would sort of, as one of their last acts effectively as deans, figure out with some sort of temporary solution um, 
for these statues. They had gotten a lot of complaints, right? And they enlisted a committee um, within the sort of uh, Dean of Students office and this sort of college administration that is working on house renewal. And as you might know, um, all the different houses at Harvard are undergoing a sequential um, renovation process. So the committee that's working, one of the committees working on this house renewal process um, interfaced with the faculty deans and they talked about potential temporary solutions. And after a lot of discussion, um, their sort of resolution was to board this up as a temporary measure until um, it could be sort of, once, it's, once the building's renovated, uh, which is still slated for 2023, um, once the building's renovated, this could be permanently addressed. Um, and them and a few other people in house leadership at the time had expressed that they wanted to see these statues removed uh, permanently. So um, the encasings went up um, in this, by, this, by the spring semester of 2019. And um, I talked to some students at the time who were living in a entryway or in Adams in general, and they had all said they received no communication about this. There were several students who were very critical of the fact that these statues were here um, and brought it up with the house deans and they came back um, in the next semester to see construction and the encasings going up without really a word or a discussion from the house leadership. So um, one of the central critiques uh, that students and other act, like people I've talked to or experts in this issue have raised is that um, as a temporary solution, you still require some sort of public or formal acknowledgement of one, what these sculptures represent and two, why we're actually boarding them up. Um, and neither, none of those things took place, which the dean had acknowledged to me in, in an email. Um, so they, they said to me when I presented them with, with these, these comments that, uh, you know, this, this was a temporary solution. We were waiting for several reports to finish and so forth to really make a, a, a solid decision on this. So I uh, went through a lot of the different reports and the things that were going on about this time to really investigate, you know, what would these reports look into? What will the reports say about what this process means? And when they wrote to me, they said, they were waiting on several reports to complete. However, two of those reports had already completed by the time the decision was made um, to board up the, uh, the encasing. And the third report, which was one that was supposed to be um, undertaken by the House Renewal Advisory Committee, which is the group that was overseeing the renovations. Um, I talked to them about, like, is there a report? And they, their spokesperson told me, oh, no, we don't have a publicly available report. So I, I thought to myself, okay, well, I'll look at the reports that have come out at least um, to see what they say, and perhaps about if they provided any guidance whatsoever on how um, these types of issues could be undertaken. So one of the ones was uh, published in 2018. It was a presidential initiative about looking at very broad diversity inclusion goals across the university. Um, and within this report, there's very little comment, frankly, about how to handle um, like big like instances of problematic public art, right? It just provided some general guidance on you know, how we can maybe approach these issues and we should look into this further effectively. The second report, um, which also um, concluded um, quite recently, um, was this college board report looking at symbols and spaces, um, which uh, looked at um, college specific like spaces, perhaps like the, the public art in Annenberg Hall or the public art that's like in some of the dormitories and the dining halls on campus. Um, looking at what those symbols represent, how undergraduates interact with them, how they affect the undergraduate experience. Um, and one of the conclusions of this report was that, you know, um, there's no real organizing principle to a lot of how these uh, portraits and sculptures and so forth go up on the walls. Uh, but additionally, there's not that much comment on, you know, um, if, there's a, if there's a problem with a lot of this, uh, if, if there's a problem with any of this art, um, what can we do about it? But one of the, the, the sort of central recommendations was that um, these are discussions that need to be had with the community, with students and so forth, right? Um, and I talked to the chair of this report, Professor Ali Asani, and he told me his personal opinion was that these statues um, in Adam's house, which they had discussed as a topic um, that informed some aspects of the only minorly though, um, he said that um, he believes that uh, covering it up is sort of a, missed opportunity uh, for a missed pedagogical moment um, that these should be sort of contextualized in place or something like that. 
And then finally, there was another report that came out last semester. Um, this wasn't a report that the faculty deans told me they were looking into. However, um, the chair of the House General Advisory Committee sat on this report. Um, the, the chair of this particular uh, report told me that they had discussed the fireplaces to some extent. And finally, um, uh, several uh, committee, there was one committee member who was on both the previous report that I had just mentioned and this report. Um, so I thought that they, you know, perhaps would provide some sort of uh, guidelines on what could take place. Um, and this particular report was an FAS-wide report um, that looked into the visual culture and signage of FAS spaces on campus. And it sought to really delineate a broad process for how um, particular quote unquote visual culture issues can be addressed and undertaken in a responsible way by the Harvard community. And they laid out this broad scope process, but one thing that became incredibly clear from their report is that public discussions, formal acknowledgements, you know, that sort of stuff um, is an important part of the process and that students should play an integral role. So based off all these reports, which I had to read through, um, you know, it became clear that there was this sort of massive bureaucratic pathway that issues like these often have to go through and are, are being teased out by different aspects of the university. But at the end of the day, a lot of these, these recommendations, both uh, concurrent with the decision-making and also retroactively um, recommended uh, methods of tackling this issue that were not heeded when this issue was uh, undertaken by um, the former faculty deans. Um, and frankly, to report this was quite, uh, I had to really, I was really you know, wrangling people to get on, on record comment for this. Uh, you know, I, I requested to view photos that were in several administrators' possessions. Um, and, you know, they said, you know, we do have photos, but we're not going to show you the photos <laughs> of the fireplace. Um, so it, it took me a long time to track down even what the, these, uh, these sculptures looked like. Um, in one sort of notable instance, I, I found that there was a sketch um, in the archives of the planning office here um, that sh supposedly showcased the fireplace, like an original 1902 sketch of this fireplace that would have shown the sculptures. So I requested to view it um, and I got an email back saying, um, we're denying your request uh, because the building owner denied your request. Um, and you know, just through sort of my reporting, I was able to obtain a sketch with the same exact description and title as the one that is held in the planning office. And this particular sketch, which was 1902 in uh, original, you know, did not have, it was so vague, you couldn't even really see the sculptures. It was, it was a, like a wider shot of the wall where the fireplace is. And the sculptures in question were like this big. Um, so, you know, it, it was such an innocuous little drawing. It, it seems so stunned. I was so stunned that, uh, you know, they would try to sort of, it wasn't worth keeping from me, you know. Um, so throughout all those sort of challenges, and I had a lot of people in Adam's house and Adam's house leader currently um, just would not talk about this on record. Um, so, you know, it, it was quite an arduous process. And what happened next is the interesting part. And, and this is the, the last thing I'll say before uh, we can sort of open it up to a broader discussion is that, um, and I'll, I'll drop this in the chat, but we did see some sort of, um, we did see a reaction in the house uh, to this, uh, this particular issue. Um, let me grab this link. So about 36-ish hours after the article went up, I went, I went to the fireplace to, just to look at it one more time. And it became clear that some students had messed with it. So um, one thing that was apparent, and the dean said that they were worried about something like this when they were making their decision making, was that um, students actually had removed a panel from the fireplace um, about a day and a half after my article came out. They removed it, it was a loose panel, so they didn't really do any damage. Uh, they removed it, they set it aside, um, and they to expose some of the, the left-hand side. And they pasted all these little signs all over the, the encasing saying what's under there. Um, my editor the next morning goes by, um, on Monday morning, goes by and wants to look at this to see it herself. And the signs, excuse me, the signs are gone. 
the panel is replaced and it's now screwed down permanently. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, and later that week, uh, the faculty deans, the current faculty deans of Adams House sent out a very long uh, statement to the house um, acknowledging what these sculptures were, acknowledging the decision-making process former faculty deans used um, and saying three important sort of, I guess, notes that one, the, the fireplace will remain covered uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, they're not going to take these casings down. Um, two, they're going to open this up to a, a formal discussion with house members. And they have this um, several weeks ago now um, in one of the Adams House spaces to, just to talk about the article, to talk about the fireplace. Um, and then finally, that once renovations begin in uh, 2023, uh, well, actually before that, sorry, um, in 20, late 2022, um, students will be able to provide input into the renovation process. And one of the topics of discussion will be the fireplace. However, the Dean said that the fireplace will be removed in the renovations. Um, so what was encouraging to see from- However, this, say that again. Yes, yeah, so however, um, the fireplace will be removed um, during the renovations. Um, and gotcha. what was notable from this was that, you know, a lot of the former students that I talked to who lived in Adam's house, um, recent alums, they had all said that, you know, we just wanted to have some sort of acknowledgement of what this is and to talk about it publicly. Um, and there were a wide range of people who wanted it to see the statues contextualized, to see them removed from the light, to see the encasing stay up. You know, there was a wide range of opinions on what should be done. But ultimately, almost everyone I talked to said that they want to talk about it publicly and acknowledge it, which are two things that have finally happened um, sort of uh, this month, actually, which is very encouraging to see. Um, so... I've been rambling, but uh, that's sort of the, the state of things right now. And we'll, we'll really see what happens in the fall once those discussions kick off. About and, and, yet you're, and yet you're saying that Harvard uh, still refuses to uh, allow photographs to be circulated or they're not producing a photograph for discussion, discussions? Or? So to clarify, um, you know, I, I identified that several administrators were in possession of uh, several photographs. So they, they took photos of this before they put the encasings up, right? And, uh, you know, I, I, I asked them, like, do you have photos? Yes, we do. Can I see them? No, you can't. <laughs> so, you know, they, they didn't let me see it. They, they said that it wasn't the right time, right? They said it wasn't the right time. We didn't want to, we don't know how we're going to approach this issue. When we have already a chorus of reports providing instructions of, you know, how to broach this public discussion. So it felt like this, this conversation was being stalled and stalled and stalled. Um, and, you know, um, keeping with the, the, the encasings up seems to be somewhat in line with this about like, you know, not really sharing visual evidence um, of, you know, what, what's really behind here. Uh, but as you've seen in the article that I produced, I was able to track down some photos of, uh, of, the, of the fireplace before uh, the encasings went up. So there is some record there. Wow. So where did you get those photos, which were fascinating? Um, and what kind of reaction have you had from administrators who earlier had told you that they wouldn't show you the photos? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, frankly, I haven't heard from most of the administrators. Um, uh, normally with, uh, uh, I think, very tense topics like this, I, I would get an email often from a spokesperson saying, you know, here's the things that, you know, you may have mischaracterized or something like that, um, or like things you got wrong or whatever, but I haven't heard any communications from the spokespeople for the administration. They're just investigating the leakers, right? Um, <laughs> well, uh, so all these photos, a lot of the photos, some of them are credited, some of them are not, right? So some of them I didn't, there's no, there's no credit line because the source did not want to be identified. Um, however, uh, for some of the photos, uh, it was just taken by a student, you know, in Adam's house, um, uh, who like who, who found it offensive or something and took a photo and they saved it. And I talked to them and they dug it up and let me use it for the for the article. So perhaps it goes without saying, but you are dealing with a bureaucracy that we all are familiar with to some degree. And in 1963, when we <laughs> In college there, there was a building, <clears throat> it was called New Lecture Hall, 
and you had Gov One and or Economics One or whatever large lecture hall in the, the new lecture hall. That new lecture hall, as we called it in 1963, I believe was built in 1910 or 1911, and they still had not gotten a name for it. That's fine. <laughs> Just, just saying, as my kids would say. I would like to offer a couple of comments. I, I'm an old, I'm a Yankee, I'm Yankee transplant here in South Carolina, you know, and on the Boston Common is the great St. Gaudan statue monument to the 54th Massachusetts and Robert Gould Shaw, you know, which was the great uh, Negro regiment in the Civil War and that distinguished itself in various ways. And here in South Carolina, we have still flying the Confederate battle flag in various public places. And uh, we have a monument to the uh, Hamburg Massacre. I don't know if you know what the Hamburg Massacre was around 1873. The end of Reconstruction, there was a confrontation, a violent confrontation between a bunch of whites and a bunch of Negro black soldiers. And there was exchange of gunfire. One white guy was killed and six black guys were killed. The monument is to the one white guy and it's still there, you know? So, I mean, it's this, this, this is a very different kind of situation, much more explicit than those sculptures in Adam's house, which are rather subtle, I would say. Uh, that's my opinion from having seen the pictures. And uh, we have still have a very large conversation to have in this country about history and what to do with monuments. Should they be removed? There's been suggestions for the Hamburg Monument, for example, that one, it be removed or that monuments to the blacks who were killed be erected or whatever. And it's still there. Nothing has happened. At least the Confederate flag was removed from the top of the State House dome when Nikki Haley was governor. I think it was after the shooting at Mother Emanuel Baptist Church and uh, our AME Church, I should say, not Baptist, Mother Emanuel AME Church. And it was moved to a place on the State House grounds. And now I think it's in a museum. I don't think it's on the State House grounds anymore. But these are very obvious, out in your face kind of things, which the sculptures in Adam's House strike me as being kind of subtle. Um, in a here in Aiken, we have a number of historical monuments. One historical monument is to the discovery of the neutrino for which people at the Svenner's site got a Nobel prize in the 1950s or 1960s. That's one historical monument. Another historical monument just down the street is a Confederate soldier memorial, you know, with a bunch of Confederate names on it. So I've got a com quick comment and then a question. The comment I really follows up on what, what Bill just said. I, I, for one, am a, a, against removing these Confederate monuments. I won't pontificate about my reasons for it. We can talk about that in greater detail if you're interested at, at some later date. But in words of one syllable, I think we continue to need to be reminded that things aren't as good as some people would have us believe. So I'm not sure that the situation at Adams House is exactly equivalent. It probably isn't. But my question is this, if the, the, the sculptures are boarded up and if the fireplace is going to be removed when Adam's house is renovated, what is there left to discuss? Yeah, so uh, frankly, I can't say for sure what is left to discuss. I'm not really sure what those discussions will look like. However, um, one thing that's been noticeable, especially as I visited the other renovated um, spaces in Adam's house, some of them have historical plaques uh, for things, you know. For example, um, in Adams House, um, the Harvard Outing Club used to have their own office in Adams House. Um, and they had, they had to relocate as a result of the renovations in Claverly Hall. And they're not moving back. They have a new office space, um, but their historic home was in Claverly. So um, when the renovations completed for Claverly Hall, um, they put a plaque up saying, here's where Hawks like the Harvard Outing Club's office used to be, it's historic space, things like that. Um, and uh, the question I think for a lot of people is that, you know, if it's already a foregone conclusion that these are gonna be removed, that the administrators say they're gonna be removed, what will take its place? Um, 
And, you know, when they were having those intermediary discussions with both the architects and the House and the committee, um, the faculties were presented with several options, right? Um, they could obscure it from view, right? They could remove it outright. Um, they could potentially, you know, have it carted off to uh, just give it to like the Harvard Art Museums, for example, or, you know, replace to like a sort of Indiana Jones swap of like the particular offending granite blocks where the sculptures are and replace them with plain granite or something else, right? Um, so uh, I think the question really here uh, for a lot of students is, um, you know, if it is going to be removed, what takes its place? What's going to be in the place of this, um, you know, this fireplace here? Um, and, you know, we've seen plaques be utilized in the past to sort of commemorate, you know, different aspects of Harvard's history in sort of dormitory spaces that have been recently renovated. So I'm curious to see if they will take a similar path or potentially put something else in its place. Uh, so, you know, one thing that was suggested to me um, by someone was that, you know, if they are going to remove it, why don't we replace the, the statues with sort of a more um, diverse and like equitable representation of, you know, who Harvard students um, are. Um, so we'll see. I, I can't really say to like, you know, what those discussions will look like. Could I ask just a very quick follow up? Did the fireplace work? <laughs> no. So as, as is the case with all the sort of um, in dormitory fireplaces, they've been boarded up. Um, however, this is a, this is a, an Inglenook fireplace. So, you know, there's two seats on the inside. You can sort of sit in it. It's really large. It has its own room. So it's not just your typical bedside, you know, whatever it is. Um, but, you know, the little sort of, uh, uh, firebox has just, it's just covered. Mm -hmm. uh, John. Oh, uh, Peter, you want to go first? Go ahead. Um, well, I was just going to say, when we talk about history, um, those panels covering up the um, sculptures um, are the very definition of cover up. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Has, has great important, I think, um, historical implications. We all know what we, we all live through Watergate. We're living through the Supreme Court issues now. Cover up is a kind of concept that um, has all kinds of implications. I frankly, in reading Simon's article, was very disappointed that my Harvard, my institution, my great liberal university, would engage in that kind of cover-up. And the discussions that have uh, revolved around it, um, according to Simon's article, um, are a problem in themselves. Why would Harvard feel, first of all, that they had to cover it up? Why couldn't they admit to a cover-up? Why didn't they show them the photographs? All these issues about cover-up um, have various historical implications which shouldn't be um, eliminated from the discussion, I think. One thing I'll hey, well, say. That, that ties into what I was uh, going to suggest is I find this uh, whole incident to be uh, some species of hysteria. The, uh, that image, why that is a caricature or an offensive or racist image, I don't know. It's a fairly uh, realistic physiognomically uh, representation of a person of um, African descent. And so if we think that every time someone who looks like an African person, that that's offensive or racist, then I would say that we have, um, you know, imbibed and accepted racist notions of, of um, appearance. That person's face doesn't look that much different from Martin Luther King's face and the Martin Luther King sculpture, if you look at them in, in Washington. So um, how someone would go by that statue and decide that, uh, you know, I think it's a subjective reaction, but what causes that subjective reaction to think that it's something in and of itself negative. Now, the fact uh, they they want to if it's a if it's a representation of imperial progress you know the Indian and maybe someone said it was an Asian well we know that there are many such uh, many such images but I, I th the reason that there wasn't much said about it all that time is that really we see a lot of things like that um, I see representations 
of black faces in the cartoonists, black cartoonists, Ali Harrington or Gerald Tuex of Muhammad Speaks, uh, they have they have caricatures that if white people drew them, they would probably be de being denounced as insulting. But that same caricature, because it looks like a you know uh, an African descended person, uh, when drawn by these great cartoonists, they are accepted, and people are then they got the green light that they can laugh at it or chuckle about it. But this particular image is not there to be uh, laughed at. Really, the context of it doesn't indicate that. But uh, you know whatsoever. Also, unless we see these other faces on the other pillar, we don't know what might be represented there. And does some, uh, you know, do they show an Italian or a Jewish person that then someone's going to say, well, that person's not good looking enough, and therefore it's an insult? But all all representations of black men have to look like, uh, you know, Billy D. Williams with a conch or something or other, or otherwise it's insulting. So I find the whole thing, I find the response of the institution to be um, hysterical. I find the whole thing to be hysterical, really. Well, let me just say quickly, Peter and John, our Harvard is the institution that doesn't know how many black students were admitted in 1963. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they say they don't. That's our Harvard is the institution that says it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Gary, yeah. Gary, what are you going to say? Um, I just, I guess what I'd like to say is I agree with George. Um, you know, I won't go into removing. Confederate monuments, but if indeed these sculptures are removed, I hope indeed that there is a picture that's taken, a plaque that's put up. Uh, I don't want to cover up the past. I think people in Adams House should know what was there at one point in time, and if the decision was to remove it, fine. But let's remember our history. Uh, you just can't cover it up. Exactly. Exactly right. Exactly right. Well, Simon, I mean, what is the level of sensitivity of the kids, of the students there now, your classmates and the white and black classmates? I mean, how, is it a matter of they're more sensitive than perhaps we were back in uh, 63? Um, so I'll say that um, a lot of the students that I interviewed um, for this piece are both um, recent alums and a few current ones um, in Adam's house. They all, they all kind of said, you know, a lot of them, there were a diversity of opinions in terms of, you know, what should be done to these, these, this, these statues, but ultimately of the sort of small sample I've taken, a lot of them seem to want to see the fireplace removed outright. Um, and uh, one thing I'll say, and this was cited in one of the reports that I had had, had read through about uh, these issues, is that um, you know, like the people on like that professors, especially that were running these reports, um, really understand and want to sort of see history mem memorialized and cataloged publicly and properly. Um, but at the same time, there is this consistent call from students that, you know, if it's in your living space, that different conditions may apply. Um, this is a particular quote um, in the report that, you know, it's one thing to acknowledge and understand a sort of problematic history. Uh, but at the same time, um, it's another thing to live with it and arguably walk by it every day um, was one of the quotes. Um, so. You know, I, I think a lot of students have are, are sensitive to these particular issues, especially when it's uh, something that they live with in their dormitories. Uh, Fred. It seems to me that if the statues of Confederate fighters are going to be displayed <laughs> around the United States, then soon we should be erecting statues of those other opponents of America, like the 9-11 group, <laughs> um, because the Confederates were fighting the American flag. And so were those in 9-11 fighting the American flag in their way. So if, if our adversaries are going to be, if our Confederate adversaries are going to be lionized, then so should our Muslim adversaries. 
Let me it comment. seems to follow to me. <laughs> Bill. Let me just comment, you know, about the Confederate memorials in the South. There, as I'm sure you are well aware, there was a serious effort beginning some years after the Civil War, late 1800s, early 1900s, to romanticize the Confederacy and turn it into the great lost cause that was a superior society and so on. And these monuments were erected during that period, generally speaking, and they haven't been taken down since. So this was the, you know, there are in, in the South, in South Carolina, I'm sure other Southern states, there are organizations such as the Sons of Confederate Veterans and the, the Daughters of the Confederacy who are active organizations trying to memorialize and to some extent glorify the history of the Confederacy. And that's the context of these things. Now, what do we do with them? That's real history. It's there. That history is part of our country. I call it. I well, I call it the rewriting of American history. Well, sure, of course. Well, I, I if I can say, I, I think that's a, a very difficult issue because these people did give their lives, many of them, for a cause they believed in. Uh, and should we denigrate that? Uh, then maybe we ought to denigrate all those people who fought in Vietnam because that was really a fucked up war. <laughs> it shouldn't have been in. That's a good point. Yes. Yeah. I, I want to. I would like to go back to the, one of the heads. Was the apparently the head person in the headdress, perhaps an American Indian? Uh, and of course, the United States destroyed the Indian nations. Should we all be proud of that? I don't think so. Uh, no. But, uh, but today, the Indian, American Indian people are proud of their heritage, and they often wear uh, those war bonnets and, and tribal dress and so on proudly. Well, these are all difficult issues, I think. But it, but it, it all boils down, I think, to how we effectively tell American history from all perspectives. And that, I think, is a hard question to answer. At least it is for me. Yeah. Uh, David, David Allen. Um, George, thank you so much. Uh, hands right off to where my heart has gotten to with this discussion, which is the question of uh, airing these matters. For goodness sake, Simon has told us how there's been real repression of that discussion. Does that make any sense in an academic environment? Uh, when I think about the, the broader sweep, uh, slavery, first of all, accepted by some of the founders of the country. Then we go through this uh, bloodletting, this horror of the Civil War, but uh, then uh, Jim Crow and utter denial of the racism in this country, Fortunately, now in recent years, uh, some of it more uh, coming to consciousness, even for an old fart like me at 80. Thank God my consciousness is finally being raised. It's all about public discussion of the matter. Uh, Simon, please take back, and I don't suppose as a reporter you can write an editorial, but uh, get somebody to write an editorial. Hey, What's with this business that we can't talk about this? It's the whole story of ridding racism from our society. Only if we talk about it, are we ever going to have any hope of getting there? So one thing I'll say, um, and, and I'm not gonna comment on it further than this, but um, our editorial board did opine on this issue and I'll, I'll drop the link in the chat if you wanna read what they, what they thought about um, this, this particular piece. I'd like to say that for myself, I go back and forth uh, as a Harvard graduate between some degree of pride and uh, a bunch of shame and anger and fury about a lot of this. And we, it's easy for us to think that Harvard is separate from the rest of society, but it's not. And a lot of Harvard people created a lot of the mess that we have today, including John Roberts. And. Um, uh, we're also tied in with the uh, whole, whole thing about critical race theory and are you going to bury the, uh, the, the uh, history? And I'm very much 
against bearing history, like I think is the consensus here pretty much. Here in Nashville, we, we had Far, uh, Nathaniel Bedford Forrest guarding the entrance to the city on a big horse and in a bust on the state capitol. Both of those were taken down in uh, uh, last year. And I, I, I am delighted that they were such a bone in my, in, in my throat. Something like this appears different. And I liked what you were saying about it, John Woodford. Um, but but uh, uh, I think we need to be on the side of letting things out. Yeah, I agree. Not concealing them. Simon, could you uh, sort of change the subject a little bit? Could you tell us how the, uh, let us know how the committee report on, on the legacy and slavery is playing up at uh, Harvard now and what's your sense of that, if you can? So there was certainly a, a large reaction among um, many students. Um, the Crimson, for example, um, we published, and I, I can't speak on behalf of uh, the Crimson, but uh, we published one of our final issues of the semester was a full spread on the front page of listing out all the names of the um, enslaved people that the report had identified as like owned or uh, managed by um, Harvard administrators and professors. Um, and we put that as our front page spread, um, I think a week and a half ago or so. Um, there's been a, a considerable reaction among a lot of professors and students. There's been a lot of different takes on it. Um, however, there's not been, you know, like a strong organizing, I think, among students in terms of like a perhaps incredibly negative or incredibly positive reaction. Um, in fact, actually, in our commencement issue, one of the pieces we're hoping to produce is a more thorough analysis of, you know, um, what this report means um, for Harvard University um, and as well as for like the community in terms of reactions and what, what happens next, especially with the $100 million commitment they made um, to investigating these issues further. I, I just, one point, I, you were, I think it was Nick was talking about the new lecture hall. I always thought that was named after uh, Lowell Adams Winthrop New the Fourth. <laughs> <laughs> Really? <laughs> Maybe it was the third all. Oh, oh sorry. sorry Get those numbers right all. Yeah. Right. Definitely a reasonable assumption, however. <laughs> so, Simon, what are you working on now? What's your next uh, investigative uh, adventure? You know, I can't say that. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, don't tell anyone. I always have a few irons in the fire. I'll say okay. that. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, thank uh, you. For uh, Simon, uh, what are you graduating this year? No. So I'm a, I'm a soft, I just finished my sophomore year. So I have two oh. more years. Wow. Simon, when are you going to get a job or have you gotten a job offer from the New York times yet? <laughs> <laughs> but this summer, this summer, actually I'm working for the Boston globe, which is very exciting. Oh, wow. That's great. Good. Right on. Good. Yeah. Good, good. All right, well, thank you for coming on and uh, good luck. And we'll talk to everybody next week. Great. Thank All right, thanks Great. so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Been on, Simon. Take care. That was Harvard Crimson investigative student reporter Simon Levian. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or from wherever you get your podcast. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.